Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell, as always. Paddy, how are you this week? I am absolutely positively fantastic, Gary. How are you? I'm great. Delighted to hear it. My room is a bit messy, so if you are watching this uh, on the old YouTube and you see the video, I've just moved house, so we've got a lot of bags that need sorting, so I do apologize for the lack of um, domestic discipline displayed in this podcast. It's uh, one of Jordan Peterson's key rules, you know, tidy your room. It's really funny, though, because there's so many memes of him in an absolute dirty room. So messy, yeah. To be fair, since he's returned, his room has been impeccably clean. And I'm admiring, you know, I mean, he's back on the path. You'd love to see it. But in fairness, like, what has he been doing for the last, like, two years? Cleaning his room. Cleaning his room, clearly. (laughs) Anyway, purpose of this podcast is to follow on from last week. Last week, we had a discussion primarily focused on economics i guess really more than anything else economics philosophy politics they're all intertwined you know it's 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 politics and philosophy all the way down really when you're talking about any topic so there you go um but but yeah today we're going to be talking about about food stuff more or less okay so we're going to be focusing on how what we discussed last week um all of which related i guess to big picture economic systems um how that relates to obesity um, and increasing prevalence of obesity. And that's clearly uh, going to be related to the food environment, food industry, all those sorts of, sorts of variables. And the reason we want to discuss this and the reason that we recorded the last episode as well is because this is obviously an underappreciated area of ob- obesity causality um, when it comes to the personal training and, and fitness industry generally. And that's understandable because as personal trainers, uh, we, including me and Patty, work with individuals. So we work with people and we get to analyze their behavior on an individual level. We see repeated trends between people and we see re- repeated places where we can intervene on the individual level to make change. However, those micro level changes and causes of someone overeating, for example, do not actually inform us about the big picture causes. Because if we were to think about, if we were to zoom out and ask ourselves, why has obesity been rapidly increasing in prevalence, not just in the Western world, but across the world over the last 50 years? Why has that happened? And you know, you could say, oh, it's it's just because... Um, everyone just started to become less disciplined because we got the internet and maybe they lost willpower. And, but like, it doesn't really hold true when you actually look into it. You know, it doesn't really make any sense. Would that, has that really happened? Um, and, and obviously the answer is no. But we can identify things that have changed, that have contributed to food availability on a mass scale. It's very easy to buy food. It's very cheap to buy food. And it's very easy to, to buy cheap foods that are very energy dense. Um, And that's primarily what we kind of see as the big picture causal factor. If you were to reduce it down, it's pretty much the availability and the demand for energy dense, cheap foods. You know, that's, that's fun. There's other things that are related to it, obviously, urbanization, um, you know, more sedentary lifestyles, all those sorts of things, but they do kind of all come together um, to, to make the situation very much one that's been driven by, the, the economic environment more than anything else. Yeah. Like you said, <clears throat> this is 
often forgotten about because people do focus on like obesity researchers, for example, as well. It's not just like personal trainers. Like a lot of them will be focused on the individual intervention because ultimately that's all they're really empowered to do. You know, they look at it like what can an individual do? Right. And that's great because obviously like we're a big advocate of that. Like we help individuals. Like I'm not writing policy for, you know, my country here. Um, I'm not smart enough to do that. Um, but, you know, it, it makes sense to focus on the individual, right? Because we also have this narrative in society that, you know, we are an individualistic society. We value the individual and it makes sense then to go, how do we deal with obesity? Let's focus on the individual, right? And as we've been discussing over this entire obesity series, like there is far more to the situation of obesity than just what the individual has control of. You know, and we've talked about it before in terms of, you know, socioeconomic status. And obviously now we're talking about what we mean by that socioeconomic status in some degree, like we're not actually talking about the socioeconomic status itself. We're talking about the situation in the world that leads to that disparity, right? Not to say now that if we had not got neoliberalism, right, that that disparity wouldn't be even increased, you know, for example, again, we can look at China, which we'll look at in a second and. in terms of their economics and they're supposed to be you know a communist dictatorship right so you would think as a communist dictatorship we are for the workers we are for the people you know this is what people in the west they're like oh these like more communist style policies and are the things that are going to close this disparity in terms of you know the lower class and the upper class right but in china you probably have the most glaring difference in this disparity like you could go to you know a really built up urban chinese city and see people that are majorly affluent right like have huge amounts of money just like you you would see in a, a western country a developed country you know like america for example right but all you have to do is go to the countryside and you see people in complete abject poverty right now the Chinese government is doing stuff to combat that. I actually think some of the policies they do, and like I, as we've discussed in the last episode, I don't agree with the Chinese government and I'm probably as far right as you can be compared to the Chinese government. But I agree with some of their policies in terms of, you know, they're actually giving poor people like farmers, like cows, right? Because again, then they can breed the cows, they can sell them for meat, they can do whatever, right? And so they are trying to offer a way out of the situation. However, the situation still remains the case that there is a huge disparity in terms of, you know, socioeconomic status between the the lowest and the highest in China as well, right? So again, we have to be aware of when we are talking about this stuff that, you know, there are unintended consequences of every action that we take, right? And there's probably not one singular way, like uh, say communism might be great at solving this issue, but you know, neoliberalism might be great at solving this other issue, right? Um, and we unfortunately don't have a very good way of knowing ahead of time what's going to happen, right? Like we can look to the past and see what's happened. Like for example, again, you can look at any communist, you know, dictatorship in the past and even the current one, you know, well, current ones, it's like these, these are not, great places to live if you aren't you know for that that party but that's the same with all dictatorships right and um, but there, there, there's huge things um or huge there, there are things that can go wrong regardless of the 
the so, or the economic policies we enact, right? So I want you to keep that in mind as we do get through this this podcast because it, it really does bear keeping in mind in terms of someone can sell you a narrative. Like effectively, we're trying to sell a narrative here, but I'm going to say at the end of the episode that I don't know what the fuck to do, right? Like I'm I'm going to say that right now. I'm like I don't have a, an answer to this, you know. As I said, I'm not smart enough, right? Um, but that's the case with a lot of the policies that are brought in. They, there are unintended consequences to all of them, right? And we have to be aware of that, right? So I suppose we'll get cracking on the actual, like what we're actually talking about when we're talking about this neoliberalism-led nutrition transition and what has led to the obesity epidemic crisis, whatever you want to call it, right? And I think even though you could easily start in Britain or you could start in America, like the, the trend for that it's kind of dragged out over a number of years and it's actually probably easier to use something like China, as I said, excuse me, as a a case study, because the the process has kind of been condensed. You know, we could use an African country as well. um, But there's, there's probably not as much research on that as there are, as there is in China, because the Chinese are also doing their own research. Not to say that African countries aren't doing their own research, but the Chinese have really invested a lot into research in the last few years. So we have a lot more data points for them, right? So do you want to talk about the nutrition transition in Asia, um, particularly in China? Yeah. So, I mean, like if you, if you have any, you know, rudimentary understanding of Chinese history, as I would regard my own understanding, um, like China didn't exactly have a great food environment in the mid 20th century, <laughs> to say the least. Ever really at all, <laughs> if you look past any of their history. Yes. But when it came to um, the 1970s, then China basically had significant um, economic reform under Deng Xiaoping. Um, and that basically led to a more kind of liberal economic system um, whereby you had more um, private industry um, you had more foreign investments eventually. And all of this stuff led to rapid um, economic growth in China over the subsequent decades. But as with many cases where you have an improvement in one metric, there's basically side effects or trade-offs that comes with that. Okay. So, you know, China had absolutely over the last 50 years or 40 years, they've had great um, economic improvements in in terms of GDP, in terms of lifting people out of poverty, um, in terms of average wage, et cetera, all that has, has improved. But much like when you look at indices of pollution, for example, um, you might consider that to be a negative externality in, in economic terms. Um, and China rates very poorly when it comes to, to pollution in that period of time as well. I think like 120th in the world in terms of their environmental index. Um, but another negative externality you might consider to be part of that process is that of um, obesity. And obesity prevalence in China has basically just been like a linear kind of like stepwise trend over subsequent decades at like 20%, I think in the, in 19, was it 1990? Yeah, around 1990, then 30% 10 years later, and then 40% again, 10 years later. And it's just been making this stepwise increase. And one of the things that you tend to see is that there's sort of like a, a bit of a, it's, it's almost like the, the food market um, or food industry 
basically kind of pokes in a little bit. And we'll talk about this later as it relates to sugar sweetened beverages. But effectively, what happens is you get a little bit of infiltration of, you know, a fast food company, for example, fast food's an easy example, like the first McDonald's opened both in, in Russia and in China in 1990. And initially, that would have been something that would have been viewed as, you know, American symbolism fundamentally, you know, it was a kind of Western symbolism. Oh, we have a McDonald's. That's more, it was initially viewed as more of like something you might do as like a, a weird occasion, like, oh yeah, we'll go and try a McDonald's. But eventually, as you know, you get American symbolism removed, you get competition between different fast food outlets um, within different areas it eventually becomes just the norm. And that's effectively what happened where it just became normalized for things like fast food consumption. And one of the things that we would generally regard as being, I guess, a big win from a capitalism or neoliberalism perspective is that when you introduce, you know, a well-established business like McDonald's, all other businesses have to step up their game. Okay. Because if you're going to compete with McDonald's, delicious food, cheap food, then you need to really do a great job. So then basically what you have is you have this, this case where other fast food companies, both Chinese um, owned and multinational corporations like KFC, Pizza Hut, et cetera, you've got competition that's taking place there. So you get you know comp- different companies, different restaurants emulating their food models, how they run things, um, all those sorts of things that we would typically regard as being beneficial um, economic competition. Because, you know, if you've got lots of different companies competing to have the best product, then that's ultimately good for the consumer because, well, now we get better products. Like, that's fantastic. That's one of the great things that we would typically consider um, about capitalism. But one of the downsides there is that when we're talking about food, <laughs> we're th- the basically making the food better um, is appealing to our monkey brains <laughs> effectively, you know, appealing to the fact that we're very responsive to high fat, high sugar, high salt foods, really tasty, energy dense foods. And that's what we're going to respond to. And that's what we're going to, to typically consume more of and, and come back for more. So that competition. That as well. Um, like you, when you think about it from just a pure like capitalist perspective, if you are a McDonald's franchisee, you know, you're looking to, go somewhere like in china you're not going to go to the countryside you're not going to go to this you know area where people you know probably have more active lifestyles no you're going to go to the urban areas where you know there's a tower block there with you know whatever fucking twenty thousand people in it you know because you have a, a huge market right on your doorstep right but also these people have sedentary lives as well because they're they're urbanites you know they probably have an office job or whatever right so Again, it, it's hard to dissociate like, oh, it's just the, the food that has changed. Like the whole world has changed. The whole like nutrition, I don't know, environment overall has changed. Yeah, and that is actually a really, really important point because it's something you see come up time and time again. And it's actually important to discuss with regards to Western countries as well um, because it, the, like the food environment is, is molded within the broader environment and the broader way of life. And, you know, for example, when it comes to urbanization, um, if you've got, you know, a, a rapid um, economic development within a busy city, you're going to have effective 
public transport mechanisms um, that minimize the need for me to walk anywhere, that minimize the need for me to cycle, for example. Um, you're typically going to have booming industry with you know jobs and people working all day. And obviously, um, in the modern environment, that often involves sedentary work. And you know, if you are someone that's really busy and trying to get ahead, that might also mean you spending or spending less time preparing food and uh, if you have more money and food is cheap it's obviously very easy for you to go out and and eat your lunch while you're out and that's one of the things you typically see um with economic development including china um i think that yeah they had a a 500 percent increase in in food consumed outside the home um from like 1990 to 2010 and that's something that you see in the west as well and that you see all over the world as countries begin to develop so all of these things are are intertwined together and you can even bring that down to to things like the the family unit and, and the the values that you hold within a particular country um you know so, some authors have even suggested that for example as you bring more women into the workplace then what you've got is you've got a a, a man and a woman in in that type of relationship where the husband and wife are both at work all day okay so there's no time for food preparation if they're both again trying to get ahead um and again you, you you have less time for food preparation and less time for cooking less time for sitting down to a family meal because you're getting after it so all those sorts of things are what end up um pushing you to eat a certain diet or eat certain foods or make the food environment suit you more um obviously that's you don't even have to like go to china to see that like yeah exactly into this like you probably know you and your partner you know you come home after your whatever nine to six like i know obviously a lot of personal trainers listen to this so that it doesn't necessarily apply to them but like you come home from your nine to six or whatever job it is that you have the two years are fucking knackered and you know you sit down you flop down on the couch and you're looking at each other going Oh, yeah, look, we'll order that pizza, you know? So like neither of you wants to cook. Neither of you is like, oh, like let's let's go into the kitchen, rustle up a nice fucking, I don't know, meat and veg meal. Like you're just like, no, like I want food now. It's quick and easy. Or one of you is texts each other or the other one, I should say. And it's like on the way home, I pick up a Chinese or, you know, like what, like that, that kind of stuff goes on. And again, it's understandable when you consider that the two of you are working eight plus hours per day and, you know, you come home tired. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, th I think the important thing to get here as well is that when you're going through these topics, and, and this is what makes it challenging to discuss the vast majority of the time, is that like, you can't just view it as a, a good, bad binary. Like, it's, it's just not how it works. Because, you know, for example, like things like um, economic development are very clearly good things. You know, they're the things that we would generally be in favor of. We're not going to say that, oh, we should go in the opposite direction because then you've got poverty and starvation, which is not good either. So it's ultimately, you know, a case of trade-offs. Like we're not going to say that, oh yeah, well, let's make a, uh, it, it policy that women aren't allowed to work so that they have to stay home and cook for their husbands like that's clearly absurd or vice versa that men can't work and they're going to stay home and, and cook so that the family can be healthy so you have to accept that there are certain things that do go along with um, economic development and urbanization um, and, and the advancement of society towards you know more sedentary work etc that we just kind of are where we are and we have to deal with where we are because I think what some people do is they kind of just say no, I don't want to be here and let's, you know, bomb our way back, back, back to a, a past society, a hunter-gatherer society. There's examples of where that has happened. But yeah, basically, don't think of this as a good, bad binary because you, you won't come up with any effective solutions, I think. Um, yeah, you, I'm sure you won't disagree with that. Um, but yeah, there, there's also other factors, I think, that are interesting when it comes to things like 
fast food consumption, for example, that, that you often wouldn't think about and that I've only thought about when I've gone abroad sometimes. And that is that like fast food consumption um, and French big, big uh, companies with many franchises are actually very reliable and safe. Okay. And that's one of the things that does come up and has come up in, in some of the reading I've done. Like I haven't been to China, so please tell me if, if I'm wrong. Um, but for example, if you were concerned about um, food hygiene and, and you're concerned about food safety, a multinational corporation like McDonald's is probably going to have higher food safety standards than some of the fast food stalls in, in uh, down an alleyway in, in China, for example. In Wuhan or... Yeah, in Wuhan, exactly. Yeah, perfect timing. Um, but but that actually is something to to consider as well. And one of the things that's often not appreciated about um, large fast food corporations is that they've got repeatable processes that have been refined over time and very strict safety standards. Obviously, that varies by country and legal requirements, etc. Um, and I think McDonald's did actually have a a bad time in Japan in terms of lose, they had a big loss of market value because something was found in the food and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, those variables do come into play um, when it comes to fast food consumption as well. So overall, what, what you've got when, when you take all these factors and you mold them together, effectively what you've got in China is where they've basically moved away from more of a um, a, typically a higher carbohydrate and lower fat diet, if you were to classify it very simply, um, and what, towards one that is obviously higher in overall calories, um, higher in fat from a percentage basis, and lower in carbohydrates from a percentage basis. But something that we were discussing before we got on the podcast, podcast is that breaking things down in terms of purely percent macronutrients doesn't always uh, give you the full story because obviously you have to think about the overall increase in calories as well. <laughs> because while many people do say that, oh, you know, obesity is just a result of eating more carbs or whatever, um, carbohydrates on a percentage basis have actually gone down um, in China and tend to go down with this nutrition transition in all um, countries. And, and fats have gone up, but overall, like you're talking about increases in absolute quantities um, in, in many cases, um, particularly then when you start to look at the types of foods consumed. Uh, obviously, when, when you're increasing calories, it's not like um, processed foods and fast foods and foods consumed outside the home are generally healthful. You know, that's generally not the case. So you're talking about um, a, a move away from the traditional diet, increases in things like uh, vegetable oils, uh, more animal food consumption. But when we say animal food, like it's not like people are getting, you know, lean chicken breast, rice and broccoli, like you're talking about um, more uh, cheaper meats, fattier meats, etc. All of those things can contribute significantly to overall fat content then and obviously overall calorie content as well. So that is kind of the general worldwide trend that you see when it comes to the nutrition transition is that move that move away from a diet that's probably a bit more um, plant-based, not necessarily like a deliberate vegan plant-based diet, but more of an, an agrarian diet, I guess you could say, towards one uh, that, is, that is typically more dominant of processed foods, fast foods, high calorie, high fat, high sugar, high salt foods. Yeah, like I was reading two or three papers there and I kind of summarized it myself in a few bullet points. I'm just going to read them out here because yeah, go ahead. it basically summarizes exactly what Kerry said. So <clears throat> the classic like Chinese diet shifted from cereals and low fat mixed dishes uh, to being replaced by a westernized diet. And um, 
cereal and vegetable intake decreased and intake of animal foods, processed foods, sugar sweetened beverages and ultra processed foods high in energy, fat, sugar and salt increased. Now there's a decrease in cereals and vegetables and an increased intake in animal foods with pork dominating in the Chinese market and cooking oil and salt uh, intake increased and it's far above the even the Chinese recommendations. and it basically went from a high carb diet to a high fat diet. But like Gary said, like it went to a high calorie diet, right? That's how you should think of it. It's like, well, you can look at the percentages. It doesn't tell the whole story, right? And they went from like a lower animal intake to a high animal intake. And like Gary said, it's not just the, the animal products we have to look at. It's like the overall, you know, calories and macronutrients that we get from those animals. Like if you went from, I don't know, eating lean chicken breast to eating pork belly, like obviously you could say like, oh, the same amount of animal products is eaten, but there's a significant difference there. Um, Whole grains were replaced with more processed grains. Um, There's an increase in consumption of prepackaged foods and eating away from the home. Um, And there was a a shift from an agriculture and labor intensive industry to a sedentary industry. Um, And on top of that, ownership of televisions, electronic products increased considerably, you know, representing a major potential cause of reduction of outdoor activities overall you know so like all of those things were happening at the same time and so it's hard to say like oh it was this thing that caused it right but i also don't want you to think about it was this thing and um, and i don't want you to think of it like oh it's just the food that we have to worry about like it's it's everything that we have to worry about well i worry is the wrong word it's everything that we have to think about right and um, and also while we're, we're focusing on china this stuff did happen in britain this stuff did happen in america right it actually we could say it kind of started in America and then it moved out, especially to the Anglosphere. Um, but also then throughout Europe, throughout Africa, throughout Asia. Um, and again, it's, it is this kind of weird shift. And I was saying to Gary earlier on, like there are, you could see like in America and Britain, right. They basically got it happening over a longer time frame, right? Like you can look at classic examples is actually, um, in America, you can see the transition from uh, like Native Americans or indigenous, whatever like the politically correct term is, um, you know, people who actually are from America, they were there for thousands of years, whatever, you know, they're non-European, right? Um, they, when they were exposed then to that European, you know, Western style diet, like there was, you know, huge ramifications um, in that. And obviously like that's mixed in with, you know, huge upheaval in know their their whole living situation like you know especially with the americans breaking all those treaties um but you know all of this stuff again it it makes sense to think of it as well but you can see the change the nutrition transition in those populations as well where they were going from this you know traditional you know we'll say hunter-gatherer lifestyle even though obviously that wasn't the case for all of them but they went from that to being on a reserve you know the americans just put them on a reserve um and then they were also you know effectively subsidized like the american government looked after them air quotes on looked after um, and they fed them like a Western diet and you just see rapid rates of, you know, obesity, you know, failing health and, you know, issues around that. Because again, like you've taken away, first of all, the meaning and purpose in these people's lives because you've, you've taken their land. They're a conquered people now. Right. But also then you start introducing other things, which, you know, it's not necessarily as relevant to this conversation that we're having, but it is obviously relevant when we're talking about the larger picture, you start introducing things like, you know, free access to tobacco. Well, I say free access, easier access to tobacco and alcohol, you know? And again, 
this is why you have such high rates of like alcoholism um, in those Native American populations. It's like, this was kind of like subsidized. Now, do I think it was like maliciously done? I don't know. It's up to you to read the research and see if that's the case, but either way it was done. Um, and this stuff all does play into account. And you can see, probably if you look up the, like the Pima Indians, you can see this, there's a lot of research on those um, that particular uh, group of Indians. Um, like they, there's a lot of research on those that you can kind of read through and see this, this kind of an, an early manifestation of this nutrition transition going on, right? But you should also look at it in the larger context of what was going on across the, the Anglosphere, especially in America. Um, and then from the 1970s onwards, when we really started ramping up this globalization as a result of this neoliberal policy and, you know, the reduction in, you know, trade barriers and um, where effectively now we were able to have these, you know, mass economies of scale, right? Like, again, like this is after the industrial revolution of like the, the second or the third one of standardization. So now we, we had these mechanized processes and we had this idea of like, let's make our cooking environment, like say a McDonald's or something like a factory. It's like, oh, you have one person that just fries the, the fries. You know, it's like, that's, that's all they do. So they can just pump out that. It's not like there's one chef in there making a whole meal from scratch because that's just not, you know, it's not scalable, right? Um, and you had the, a more scalable or a move towards a more scalable and uh, nutrition environment and as a result then with the reduction in trade barriers as well it's like okay now we can scale this across the world you know especially with like some someone like a or a company like mcdonald's where like they their 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 economic policy isn't actually you know to make burgers their economic policy is to buy land like that's how mcdonald's makes their money like mcdonald's as a corporation will buy the land and effectively lease it to the franchisee you know and so that's how they make their money right they couldn't care less if the franchisee is making money on the burgers they sell because they're making money on the rent, you know? Um, and it's interesting as well, because like, obviously we're focusing on this in terms of like obesity, but it is the case in other areas and we don't necessarily quite join it up. And this is something we'll talk about probably in a, in a, a little bit in terms of like the socioeconomics of this, in, in terms of where these companies and stuff locate um, in these urban environments, usually in these lower socioeconomic environments, because again, they know they have a, a class of people that, you know, they're going to buy the food and they know that there's a lot of them around. So if I can offer them cheap food and it's less time consuming, you know, you can feed your family for whatever 20 euro rather than having to cook the food, which you have to then take into account the, the time investment on that. And um, you have to store the food, you know, whatever. Um, like you look at that, but it's also the case in these, you know, upper class or higher class environments where, you know, you'll have like 20 Starbucks within like a fucking 10 mile radius of each other, you know? And like, if you go to LA, for example, it's like, what, what, like, why is there so much, like so many of these same stores in the same areas? And again, then you can just go to a, you know, a lower class or a, uh, a less privileged area in LA. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, those Starbucks now they're being replaced by like, I don't know, Jack in the box and, you know, whatever else other, uh, like McDonald's, KFC, whatever, you know? So again, it's just, it's hard to just say, oh, this is all the company's fault because all they are doing is chasing profit. But because other companies are doing it in different ways, we kind of don't look at them as poorly because they're taking advantage of, you know, different people like these like affluent, um, you know, upper class Americans. They're like, ah, oh, who cares? Like Starbucks, get your fucking Vente, Moco, Choco, fucking whatever mm -hmm. invention. Um, 
they're like, who cares, right? But then again, we shifted over to all these McDonald's in this area, this lower class area. And again, then we start focusing on it more of a problem. So it's a hard one to really tease out the details. Um, especially when we're looking at like, how do we solve this? Um, but yeah, I kind of just went off on a tangent there. Yeah, no, you're, you're dead right. And I think that there's also something to be said for um, the, the role of, of culture in all this, because I suppose like when you think about the globalization um, fundamentally, like we're not just moving towards like free trade across the world and everyone having access to all different types of machines and social media and all that, but through media being you know connected between countries on other sides of the world you basically get this kind of narrowing or convening of of culture as well in terms of um, things that are enjoyed things that are embraced and you get the loss of tradition which is you know quite sad but a, a very much a reality you know you you see that with social media um with people you know catching on to american trends really quickly you know people worrying suddenly about um, American problems in places like Cork, Ireland, you know, and thinking that they're relevant here when they're not, all those types of things also play a role. And it plays a role in food. Like for example, with um, in China, as, as you get more, ex- more exposed to, uh, and to be fair now in China, like they do have significant restrictions on Google, social media, et cetera, but, but there's still a growing exposure over time towards the West towards those types of um, ways of living. And you could imagine how that would relate to anywhere in the world. You know, if you're living somewhere that's um, quite poverty stricken and then eventually you get access to media and you're seeing these things in these amazing, amazing countries, thousands of miles away. And you're like, Oh, I want to try those foods. Oh God, I'd love to see what Coca-Cola tastes like. And then that comes into your culture and then suddenly you're excited to try it and then it becomes normalized. And over time you just get this kind of, these just homogenous, um, cultures across the world and they might have their own little differences but what you see is that like it's the the countries that are really quite stern in maintaining more of their traditions that actually are a bit more resistant to the increase in obesity at least it seems obviously it relates to economic things as well Um, but japan is a good example of a country that still has um, very low obesity rates overall Uh, they did change i think their classification of what was obesity to a BMI of 25, which would put the vast majority of Irish people in the category of, of obese. But that's because as something, I, th- I think we may have mentioned already, but um, Asian populations are typically more susceptible to metabolic complications at lower levels of obesity. Um, so, you know, one of the downfalls of, of BMI classification across the board. Um, but in Japan, I think like even with the 25 uh, BMI at, at least in the, about 10 years ago. Anyway, it was um, their obesity rate was just like 20%. And that's like their overweight rate versus 65 or 68% or something in, in Ireland, which is a stark difference. But in Japan, they have maintained a lot of their dietary traditions in terms of the typical Japanese diet, you know, lots of, lots of rice, lots of vegetables with meals, um, lots of, they do, they do consume a decent amount of meat as well, typically uh, leaner meats that they're consuming. Um, and they have an, a, a number of other um, traditions. Like I think, I think there's some, they have basically this um, rule, if you will, or cultural norm, Har- Haribuchi, I think it's referred to as, but it's basically the concept of 
finishing your meal when you're 80% full because it seemed to be gluttonous to, to stuff yourself with food. And, you know, we talk about weight stigma as being a problem here. Um, but in, in Japan, it, there's, there's a lot more weight stigma. Like they have, um, like these are just examples of, of policies that you could potentially think about, but that I wouldn't agree with in our current environment. But um, there's examples where your test in, in private companies, even um, you have to have your waist measured on a yearly basis. And if your waist is going up, you have to go to dieting classes. And if you don't go, you get fined. And if companies have more than a certain amount of people who basically fail, who are overweight, then they receive fines as well. So there's a complete disincentive to even hiring people who are overweight Um Good, bad, indifferent. I'm just sharing the the other attitudes. I don't think that that's something you'd want to roll out here at all. But you just have to appreciate that there are significant cultural differences um, in different parts of the world. And and Japan, I think, is probably one of the more extreme examples of countries that have, you know, tried to um, basically stop uh, the, the spread of obesity or prevalence of obesity. Yeah, it's really interesting, again, when you start, like, exposing yourself, again, outside of this, like, Anglosphere, because obviously we speak English, like, talking about, like, you know, changes in our culture or whatever, like, we're speaking English, like, the two of us are Irish, you know, like, yeah, again, there's a, there's a reason that we're not speaking Irish, um, and that is the, the, the creep of, well, it was Cromwell, but anyway, <laughs> because the creep of the influence of, like, Britain overall, like, if Irish people wanted to be successful in Ireland, you have to at least learn to speak English, you know, um, and then obviously, if you wanted to be successful in England, you have to, if, as an Irish person, you have to definitely know English. And the same again, when you went to America. So like cultures do change, especially as populations move around. And, um, but again, like you said, with this like mass media, like output, and um, especially when it's like, you know, American movies, for example, like they go everywhere. So that American culture is basically being pushed out uh, across the world. Um, and this is actually why the, like say the Soviet Union, for example, like collapsed you know because they would get like they'd see their neighbors like west germany um and east germany like classic example they'd see their fucking neighbors across the fucking wall and they're wearing jeans they're seeing their american eyes like you know capitalism like oh they're hyper prosperity and everything and they're over there with fucking you know attack dogs going like you're not allowed to look over there like so like you could see how that appeal of something that you can't get heightens the appeal of that thing and um, but also you can see how it then spreads as well you know and this is again like you see it across the globe like that's obviously just one example but across the globe and you see it with different cultural things and whatever else and um, but it also applies to food intake and it basically gets people to move from a more traditional diet to a more you know sads diet like that standard american diet and um, model and you know that's just not a uh, not a health promoting diet model overall you know but just to kind of give a bit more clarity in terms of like how it happens and um, like the process is actually pretty straightforward again like you think about this in england and america for example this has been happening over let's give it 100 years right it's just been transitioning that way right but it really started accelerating in the last 50 years right but that gave, it's basically hundred years of refining the process, right? And now it's like, you could see a change in a country in five, 10 years, you know? Um, and the way it infiltrates is, and you'll see, you'll see this in some of the more developing nations in um, like the emerging markets in Asia, right? Um, 
which I'm heavily invested in as well because, man, lots of money to be made in case anyone's looking. Um, but basically the process is um, you bring in sugar-sweetened beverages because they're easy to bring in, right? Uh, and it's the same way, like, we'll call it a pre-packaged sugar-sweetened beverage. Beverages? Oh my, can I even fucking speak? Uh, pre-packaged sugar uh, confectionaries, right? Um, because, again, they're easy to transport. You don't need a lot of shelf space to sell them you don't need a lot of you know overall whatever in your 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 shop to sell these things right so all of a sudden you start getting a load of like coca-colas you know pepsis and fantas whatever drinks it is right that appeals to that market and all you really need for them is like plug in your fridge and there you go right easy to sell people like the taste of them like people like to taste them in Asia just as much as they like to taste them in fucking, I don't know, Arizona, <laughs> you know, it's like this, like there's like humans are humans. Right. And um, so then they start drinking more of them. So the, the business is like, yeah, man, I'm making loads of money off this Coca-Cola here or this Pepsi or whatever. And happy days. Um, so I start bringing in more of it, right? So that's how it infiltrates the market. You're basically giving these individuals, these shop owners, uh, uh, an easy way to make money. Right. Um, and then it starts going in, like we were touching on like McDonald's and stuff comes in, like you might start getting these more multinational, transnational, whatever you want to call them, um, global companies like McDonald's coming in or KFC or, you know, whatever coming in and going to these more affluent areas. Right. But also think about that, right. If you are again, a, someone from a lower socioeconomic status and, you know, you just recently moved to the city and the city has a McDonald's and you've never even seen a McDonald's before because you grew up in like, you know, the countryside, you start associating that McDonald's with wealth. You know, you're like, this is, this is what wealthy people do. They get a McDonald's, right? Because like you, from your class idea, you know, where, where you've grew up, like that was something that like you would just never get. Like you got literally fucking rice potatoes and fucking some meat if you're lucky you know it's like that's you come over here and it's like yeah here's fries and a big mac you know you're like this is fucking heaven right so you associate it with you know a better standard of living right so there's all the the cultural context around that food as well or that you know type of food whatever and so then you want more of it you're gonna oh i'm gonna go to there three four times per week rather than a country that has had it or an individual who's lived there their whole life they're like ah oh, mcdonald's is us it's fine i don't really you know i've had it a few times you know and again so you start seeing as people populations move from the countryside to more urban areas it's always going to increase because these items are seen as you know higher class items right and and then effectively what that has overall is again you start moving more towards like prepackaged foods you go into your shop again there's prepackaged foods there Right. And again, you look at foods that are easier to store. Like it's not like, oh, here's your uh, carrot sticks. You know, they're prepackaged. They're going to stay, you know, good to go for, you know, what, two weeks or something, you know, versus here's your box of fucking cookies. You know, it's like, cool. These are going to fucking last for months, <laughs> you know? Um, so again, like you look at the, the shop owner, like they're more incentivized to sell something that they know they can put on a, a a shelf and it's going to be good to go. They're not going to have to worry about, you know, a lot of stock rotation, a lot of, you know, making sure your items stay fresh, etc. And then also the consumer is not going to have to worry about that. They're just going to be able to go in and go, cool, I can buy this and it's going to be okay in my fucking press or my cupboard as everyone else, apart from the Irish say, um, it's going to be okay in my cupboard for forever, you know? 
Um, so like, again, you can understand from both a psychological perspective of the consumer and of the individual selling it, this is a good thing. But again, like if we're looking at it from the overall company, the, this global transnational company's perspective that are selling this, like they're just really looking for profit, right? And again, I'm saying that as someone that is part of the problem because I'm fucking invested in most of these companies and I'm also invested in the S&P 500. So like I'm invested in all of these companies realistically. Um, so that's, you know, I'm part of the problem. Um, but that's how it happens, right? And that leads overall to a decrease uh, or say uh, generally an increase in fat intake in the diet, uh, a decrease in um, the historical, cultural, ancestral diet pattern overall and a move away from foods that, you know, these people have generally survived on for, however many years, you know? And again, like you said, like uh, Japan is a bit of a different case, um, but the Japanese economy is also a different case. Like they always say, like there's basically four different types of economies and like they only ever single out two countries as being fucking weird economies and that's Japan and Argentina. Um, but Japan is basically a weird economy, right? So um, it, it acts differently, right? So it, it's kind of, you want to just not focus on that too much and you have to look at all the the other ones that are not the outliers you know um so like that's that's the process that happens sugar sweetened beverages come in or sugar sweetened or sugar confectionery and stuff comes in easy to sell makes sense from the consumer's perspective and from the the seller's perspective makes sense to sell it right then you have something like a mcdonald's moving in and again they go to the urban areas so there's this kind of class idea going on in terms of oh, this is what the higher classes do. Um, and then you have this change, this overall transition away from this traditional diet to a more you know, standard American diet overall. And that's coupled with generally a decrease in activity as you get a more urban population and you move away from more you know, agricultural-based jobs or even factory jobs or anything like that. It's like, oh no, I work at a desk for eight hours per day, you know, sitting down, right? So that's, that's how it happens. Do you mean to say on that, Gary? Um, no, I guess the only thing is that like people might have listened to everything so far and they still turn around and think, you know, well, it's just a trade-off and we should just accept it as a trade-off because if people want to be unhealthy, that's their choice. <laughs> Whereas it's, it's certainly, um, not that simple. And I think that, you know, from a public health perspective, there are many, even if you don't care about other people, there are other effects of increasing obesity prevalence and increased non-communicable disease that come back to um, affect you potentially or affect your country. You know, the U.S. has even, I think we mentioned that they declared it a national security issue because of the prevalence um, of, of obesity. Um, the um, well-esteemed capitalist Vladimir Lenin once said that, uh, <laughs> he once said that the health of the worker was the most important thing. And the reason he said that was not necessarily because he was a virtuous individual, but because he said that um, we need to maintain their productivity. <laughs> um, and, and that is actually something that it does need to be considered too. You know, if, so if, if you do just have a, a increasing obesity throughout the population, you let that just run completely awry and people are becoming sicker um, earlier and everything that, you know, burdens the healthcare system and leads to reduced productivity as well. So there, there's other things beyond just um, how it affects the individual themselves. So I think it's on that. There's, there's literally no way that the obesity epidemic doesn't affect everyone. Right. And this, again, it comes back to the healthcare thing, which we'll, we'll touch on a few different points in that in a second. Um, but like you have to pay for it regardless. And I mean, everyone has to pay for it regardless, because again, if your healthcare system is overburdened, like that means that you don't have as good of access to healthcare if you do need it. Right. And um, 
because there's there's more people using it because more people are sick because of these non-communicable diseases, right? But also, if you have socialized medicine in any way, shape, or form, you know, which a lot of countries do in this day and age, like you're paying for it, right? But even if you don't have socialized medicine, right? You have more of a an American model of you know medical care. You're paying for it in your insurance, right? Like they've already taken that into account that whatever 60, 70 percent of the population are obese or overweight, and they're like, this is the rate of these different diseases, these non-communicable diseases, heart disease, diabetes, whatever. And they're like, these are the amount of payouts we're going to have to pay out as a result. So we have to make our money as an insurance company. I'm going to charge more. So you get higher costs, even if you are like, oh, I just make my own choices. Like you still end up having to pay more as a result, you know? And, and again, like you might be the, the best person, whatever, but you still end up having to deal with the consequences of this you know yeah so like fundamentally like public health is in everyone's interest really you know having a healthier population is a pretty good thing so um we can agree on that very good um just on the, the the healthcare stuff as well like obviously i'm just looking at it from that perspective and i, I yeah. didn't i'm just saying that but i do also acknowledge and if people know my actual politics i do actually care about the health of society overall not just yeah. like the actual <laughs> health i mean like the overall healthiness of the society itself and it makes sense to not have six people in sick people in that society you know that aren't able to contribute to society or you know are looked down upon in society like if we start treating them differently in society like that's that's also not good and um, and like we want to have ideally a cohesive society that you know everyone is healthy and happy like that's i, I think that should be the goal um but just on that as well it's actually interesting and we, we kind of said it at the start of the podcast i believe um but there is a situation which again if you look at the anglosphere the, like america england and like australia and whatever else and um, they basically have a society that you know built up really good healthcare systems over the last hundred years, however long, right? And unfortunately, they don't have that in a lot of these more developing countries. And as a result of that, you know, like you have this increase in non-communicable diseases as a result of obesity. Um, but if you're doing it in, say, China, like you have an increased prevalence of obesity in China or Africa or something, and um, like obviously Africa is an entire continent, not a country like China, um, but in various places in Africa, like you can effectively have a healthcare system that's not set up to be able to deal with these situations. Like, even though, like we would say, like the West has like the best healthcare system in the world, especially if you look at like the Nordic countries, they'd be like, oh, they have the best healthcare system. Like they still struggle to deal with the obesity epidemic, you know? So if you're going like, oh, these, the best, the top tier healthcare systems struggle with this, like, how do you expect the bottom? Like, how do you expect these countries that are just developing their healthcare system to deal with it, you know? So again, it increases the overall burden on society regardless um, and again that directly impacts you if you believe it's like oh it's all just individualism and you know look after yourself and you know make sure you're all, you're healthy and everything like it kind of you're biting your nose to biting your nose off to spite your face you know it's like this it, it is going to directly impact you right now maybe not because you're like oh it's fine and um, but it will at some stage or at least it can at some stage yeah, and, and that actually is like a, a really important and I think underappreciated point is that is the fact that like it's it's not the same to have this nutrition transition and increasing obesity prevalence happen in a developing nation versus a developed nation, if you will. Um it, it's just not the same and it has much more um adverse effects. Because like if if like if you ever get the time, like look up the look up the prices of some like 
newer drugs, like drugs that are still patented that are seem to be effective. Like, because one of the things people get quite excited about, like if you're into it is like, like there's a lot of developments going on. in, for example, the prevention of heart disease that are quite promising, whether it be related to interventional cardiology, or it might be related to um, PCSK9 inhibitors, for example, like really effective drugs for um, reducing LDL cholesterol and atherosclerosis, et cetera, all, which, is, which are obesity related complications as well. And that's all really exciting, but look up the price of, of PCSK9 inhibitors and see how that's going to translate over to low middle income countries. Like it, it's, it's just not, you know, um, and these are the types of things that you have to wrestle with because like w- one of the good things about like vaccinations, for example, when it comes to infectious diseases is like, they're actually like not that expensive. Like, yeah, obviously there's a lot of money that goes into it, but in terms of if you're Bill Gates or some sort of philanthropist and you want to donate to a a program to combat disease in an African country, for example, um, you know that if you can effectively get a vaccination program out, that this is going to be super effective at eradicating disease. That's not the case for non-communicable disease, for heart disease, diabetes, etc. There's no simple solution that a philanthropist billionaire can say, oh yeah, here, I'm going to give 5 billion to that because there's basically no effective solutions that are easy to, to donate to and roll out. So there's lots of complications that, that go quite far. But anyway, that's not the purpose of today, but they are some of the challenges to keep in your mind for sure. Just, just on that as well, it's actually really interesting when you start thinking on a more global scale, because especially with drugs and the whole drug system, like in say Europe, for example, like that's obviously where we're both from. And like we have this perspective of like, oh geez, I'd hate to uh, live in America, like their drug system, you know, it's, it's awful. But you have to remember then that the, the case with that is like, first of all, the majority of the drugs that are made in terms of like the, the patents and stuff, they're held by American companies. Well, a kind of Israeli and American companies, they're the two places that, you know, make all the drugs or come up with all the drugs, right? But they basically recoup all of their research and development from the American market, right? And that means as a result that we all, if you live in a European country, a Middle Eastern, fucking... Asian, uh, African, we all have a vested interest in the American system not changing, right? Because if the American system was to change, we would all have to pay for like pay more for the drugs, right? They can't just recoup their losses in America anymore. They have to recoup their losses, like their research and development losses all over the world, right? So we have a vested interest in America not doing well with the cost of their drugs, whether you like to admit it or not. Right. And it's also the same with the army, you know, like if like America always gives out, well, like say Donald Trump, for example, always gives out about um, like other countries not paying their NATO budget, like not actually contributing the, the amount that they're supposed to, to their own defense, you know, like say, for example, they single out Germany, for example, um, they're not paying their whatever two or three percent for their their military budget like they're able to pay that money elsewhere because they don't have to defend themselves because america will defend themselves you know because america has a vested interest in all these middle eastern countries has a vested interest in having you know army bases in uh, germany etc right so again we've outsourced all that protection and you might disagree with american imperialism american interventionism whatever but you are protected because of that you know like it was like a in uh, like with all the Brexit talk in Ireland, like people were like, oh, like Ireland aren't going to let uh, Britain fly their planes over Ireland, you know? And like, if you actually think of it, like that has to be the stupidest thing anyone could possibly say because it's the RAF that protects the Irish airs, you know? Like, what do you think? Like British planes are going to be shot out of the sky by British 
aircraft, like military aircraft, like clearly not, you know? So like the world itself is a lot more interconnected than you actually think. Right. And like this stuff really brings it to the fore in terms of, and we're talking about like a globalized food system and stuff um, and how that affects like obesity rates and everything. But also again, like you have to think of it more so just from your own side of things as well as an individual, how, yeah, okay. You can have an individual perspective on a lot of this stuff, but you can only have that perspective in a well-functioning society. Like we touched on in the last podcast, like you could have this very laissez-faire um, ideology and go like, oh, we should have no regulations and no whatever. And that's all great and well. But as I will always say to that statement, right? Like I have, what, fucking a load of brothers, right? I know people that have, you know, 12 kids in their family, all boys, right? All men, right? Um, do you genuinely think that that's not going to lead like a laissez-faire system that's not going to lead to a system where i'm just going to pair up with this other family to have a load of boys and the two of us with our fucking army of like 25 lads are not just going to take whatever the fuck we want you know because that's the way it's going to happen in a laissez-faire system that's the way it has always happened it's not going to be like oh all the roads still get looked after and all the like you know fire brigade will come around and everything like no that stuff doesn't happen it goes it descends into anarchy because people like me that have resources and you know just like inborn resources like all my brothers would say for example like over six foot you know um it's like this you're not going to be able to compete with that unless you were just born with these resources you know like you're born into a household that has it so like it's not a better system and as a result you should just get that system out of your mind and stop thinking on a purely individualistic perspective and look i'm a real big fan of like rugged individualism like me as an individual, like I just want to fucking live in a cabin in the fucking woods up a mountain and be left the fuck alone. Right. Like that's all I want. Right. Um, but even then I'm like, I still want to interact with people. I still want to have a functioning society all around me. I don't want to wake up every single morning and go shit, man, as the apocalypse happened has like, you know, <laughs> is society fucking being ravaged, you know? So even if you are as ruggedly individual as a, as you can possibly be, like you still want to be able to go into the local fucking town occasionally and go here, look, I actually think I have appendicitis, you know, <laughs> like you, you still want to be able to be looked after. And as a result, you need to have a functioning society. Yeah. And, and, and to take that point on to kind of our, the next part of our discussion, like some of you might, might be thinking at this point, um, particularly if you're someone that like ourselves, like we're big fans of, you know, the, the rugged individualism perspective, like I think you can still appreciate that while being very much pro-public health. Um, like sometimes you can find yourself thinking, oh, not me though, doesn't affect me. All that marketing, all that cheap food doesn't affect me at all. But it does. Like it, realistically, it does in some way. You know, it, it does affect you. You're not totally immune to it. And it's definitely not not realistic to expect everyone else to be immune to it. Like personally, I have observed an example of this in myself recently because I just moved in the last two weeks. Um, well, I've been here about a week and a half, but basically I moved house, moved further away um, from my local Boojum. And normally what I do is sometimes like maybe between one and three times a week, depending on the week, what I might do if I'm, have, if I'm really busy with work or I'm studying or something, or I just want to treat myself, I'll order myself a little burrito in the, on the Deliveroo app, okay? But now I'm outside the catchment area for Deliveroo and I haven't had Boojum in two weeks, you know, I'm, unfortunately. 
unfortunately, um, <laughs> with regret. But in, in that case, like that's very, that's just because the service no longer operates for me. It's no longer available and I can't eat that food. So as a result, that changes the structure of my diet, which is purely the result of the availability of the market. So obviously this still affects someone like myself, even though I'm someone who can manage my diet quite well. And with that said, like I generally get something pretty healthy in Boojum and I still manage my diet, but it's just an example of how these things do actually impact your life. And you can see these things in your own life as well, where, you know, if a new coffee shop opens in your office building, for example, um, and you know, they're giving away free muffins, like, are you likely to take the free muffin? Of course you are. You know, the vast majority of people are going to take the muffin. The vast majority of the people are going to go to the coffee shop, even though they mightn't have previously when it wasn't there, even if it was just five or 10 minute walk away versus being in the building, all of that stuff impacts your behavior. So whether or not you like it, all of these things are affecting you. That includes things like social media. Everyone appreciates how much the, you know, that, that slot machine on your phone impacts your behavior. And the food system is the exact same because fundamentally social media companies are trying to grab you to trying to grab your attention and commoditize it. And uh, food companies are effectively just trying to uh, grab your appetite, you know, and, and try to get you to eat and not necessarily as much of their food, but continue purchasing as much um, food worth of value um, from their company. So it's, it's, it's ultimately in all of our interests to, have a think about how much we want that to impact our everyday lives. Um, because you can absolutely be in favor of having plenty of food options without it necessarily being the case that when you walk into Centra, for example, that you're, you're immediately faced with all of the nicest foods immediately with a hundred different options. Um, and then you go to pay and then the, the, you know, the, the shopkeeper or whatever they say, Oh, look, we've got these uh, two for one dairy milk bars. Are you sure you don't want them now? All those things impact your behavior. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a nice middle ground there somewhere. We don't want to just ban <laughs> processed foods either. Yeah. And there's, I, there's so much to this that we could discuss. And like, yeah. there's actually, like loads of documentaries on this stuff as well that if you are interested like even on like netflix and stuff i think there's a good few like obviously some of them are fucking shit on netflix like what the health and all um but um they they do give an idea of like the overall changing food system like a good one is actually supersize me too i know a lot of people saw supersize me like the the first one where you just basically get a load of mcdonald's um but supersize me too really does dive a little bit deeper into the overall food system as a whole Um, and you can see how it's changed from the consumer perspective but also from like the the farmer perspective for example or like these multinational corporations perspective as well so that's good movie that's good recommendation um if you're looking um but yeah, so look, realistically, everything has changed. The game has changed, right? And how do we fix this? Like, I don't fucking know. Look, realistically, I'm not that fucking smart. Look, I'm, I'm quite dumb, realistically, um, in the grand scheme of things. Um, so I don't know how to fix this, right? I can see that there's effectively three situations that we have as potential solutions. We have less regulation, right? And some people would argue for that. We have more regulation and then we have more consumer responsibility. Those are the three solutions we have to this whole situation that I can see, right? And the less regulation, like I don't really see how you could put that forth as a solution, you know? Like I don't think freeing the market more is going to make it 
a better market in terms of, you know, what the, the practices are, right? And I should just say on that, like, realistically as well, we don't have a free market. Like, we still have, like, grain subsidies, for example. We have, you know, a, a loads of subsidies for farmers, which, you know, I'm all for because, like, I think farmers, you know, don't get the fucking profit that they deserve. Um, and even with all these subsidies, like, they still are only hanging on by a fucking thread. Um in a lot of cases anyway. And like, I, I don't think that necessarily is bad, but that as a result of having those subsidies, we don't have a free market, you know? So like, if we're going to have less regulation at the end point where the consumer is involved, then we have to have less intervention at the upstream thing, which would inherently mean that we have less food available in the overall system because these farmers would basically not be able to exist, you know? And um, so like, that's, I don't think that's a good thing. Like basically inducing famine. I, I like, I don't, I don't know how you could make an argument for that being better. Right. Um, the next thing then is obviously like, you know, less regulation um, or sorry, more regulation. Like, is that the way forward? And like, this is something that we kind of touched on the last episode as well. Um, in terms of like, this is a very like anti Hayekian fucking framework. Right. And, Hayek was like, oh, look, the government should inter, inter, interfere less um, and they should not be involved, basically, like free up the shackles of the market, right? And like, I don't necessarily agree with that entirely. However, we do have to heed that with a, you know, a pinch of salt and realize that, you know, there is a, a, a good fundamental idea behind that in terms of like, how do we avoid the solution having unintended consequences that you know, disrupt the market overall, right? Because like a central planner is not going to be as good as all of us planning the market ourselves, you know? Now, the, manip- the, the market can manipulate us as much as we manipulate the market. Um, but like we do have to be aware of government intervention being done incorrectly, you know? For example, you could bring in more tax on certain foods, but that ends up being a tax on the poor, right? Like that's obviously not what we want. We don't want these already marginalized people in society that are facing significant health risks um, to be taxed more, right? Like that's, it's not beneficial, right? And um, now that's, it does work in certain circumstances in terms of like the tax on alcohol, the tax on, you know, cigarettes and stuff in Ireland, at least, you know, and um, like, I think it's like 90% of the money you pay for alcohol in Ireland is tax, you know? So like, that's, we still have a drinking problem in Ireland. So like, it's not necessarily effective to do that. And again, you think about who is that actually disproportionately affecting? It's probably like lower class people. Although, well, yeah, it is because even if you talk about like the differences in terms of alcohol consumption, like that's not really the metric we should be looking at. It's like the amount of money spent on alcohol consumption versus the amount of money you actually earn. So if you're earning like fucking, I don't know, 50K a month, like you buying a couple of bottles of wine, not you don't care that it's 90% tax versus you earning like fucking 200 euro a week and you know you're paying 90% tax on this fucking 12 pack or whatever you know it's like that's it's obviously a fucking difference you know um so we have to be aware of that right and like oh we have to be aware that we effectively don't want to make quote-unquote good food less affordable for anyone really um and, you know, we could say that you could bring in something like a sugar tax, which we'll touch on in a second, because Britain actually brought in a sugar tax, which I think was actually relatively well thought out. But anyway, um, and then also, I think, like, how do we not lose jobs with the solution, right? When we're thinking about government intervention, like, you don't want to 
lose like farming jobs or you know food service working jobs like unless you have a a place for those individuals to go you know like that's it's hard to think of a situation or a solution to the problem like you go oh you can only have i don't know fucking four fast food restaurants in this fucking i don't know 10 kilometer radius or whatever right and all of a sudden you just lost a thousand jobs from all the other fast food restaurants that had to close down and like that's obviously not beneficial that you have a thousand people unemployed with no jobs to go to you know so again like we have to think those things through before we just make these broad sweeping interventions right and again as i said like i'm not fucking smart enough to make these interventions i'm just going look let's be a little bit fucking you know on the ball when we're thinking about this stuff right um so like we have to be aware of the the more regulation thing um and like it's a fucking hard one like i'm I'm not going to say i have a solution right now we obviously believe in the other one as well like i think there's multiple levels we can intervene here and like i think a more educated and empowered consumer is ultimately the best option right however like people have real lives and you know are unfortunately easily manipulated by subversive forces and by that i mean like marketing you know so like while I like to think that a more educated and empowered society is going to be a great fucking thing for society overall, like we're still basically just fucking hairless monkeys, you know, like you put a Coca-Cola on the screen and give it that and you have it like, you know, cool water dripping down the edge of it. And you know, it's warm out. You're going to be like, Hmm, actually, yeah, I wouldn't mind a nice, like, you know, fizzy drink there. Uh, let's go down to the shops and get one, you know? So like, we're all just fucking monkeys, right? Like you're, you're at the fucking whim of your little monkey brain. Um, but yeah, like other than that, like I don't really know what the solution is to the issue. Right. Um, do you have anything to say on that, Gary? Yeah. I think like ultimately it does end up being like a very difficult conversation to have because you kind of do get into like ethical discussions really. And you have to obviously have the, the discussion from a political philosophy perspective of like, what do you want government to do? What's the role of government? And that's like, that's actually a difficult conversation because in order to accept that, um, accept, for example, um, taxation on our high levels of taxation on uh, processed foods or foods with more uh, fat plus sugar per food or something like that, or whatever it happens to be, um, then you have to you basically put the power on government to d- decide what people um, should eat and to facilitate that through specific behavioral um, interventions. And, you know, some people will say, oh, but that's manipulating. That's making people eat by, you know, disincentivizing this and that. And like all these things are just various um, levels of intervention on the public health ladder. You know, there's some that are less intervention. Just, just on that as well. It's actually really interesting when you think about this just a little bit deeper, because like people will say those things, but then advocate those things in other areas. Like people will say like, oh, if you put this tax on this food, for example, like that's going to disproportionately affect like lower income people, right? They'll be like, oh, you can't put a 60% tax on this food, right? To disincentivize it. But then they'll turn around and say, oh yes, the rich should pay a 60% tax on their income. And you're like, are you not, does that not just disincentivize them to work then? You know, it's like, you have to when you're trying to deal with this and i'm I'm trying to come from this from a genuine place like you have to deal with your own deeply embedded beliefs in terms of like you know how you think society should be run because if you think something should be done in this area but then you don't think basically the exact same thing like it's carrot and stick you know it's like okay you're saying we should use the stick here 
but use the carrot here. Like, why is that? You know, and if you believe this is a disincentive and it's not a disincentive in this area in terms of like, again, bringing a 60% tax on certain food um, and then saying we should tax people at 60%. Um, you, have to, you, have to, you have to confront that stuff. And again, this is why people don't want to dig deeper with this stuff because it is a very hard, you know, introspective thing that you have to do. Yeah, because I think part of it as well that's quite difficult for people to acknowledge is the fact that in order to accept um, a given level of government intervention, you also have to kind of accept that about yourself, that you are that your behaviors are not necessarily governed by you, that you're not, you're not, you're not 100% solely just this individual that makes everything very rationally. And I think acknowledging that is, is really, really important. And I think, again, it, it does come down to um, like stratifying this into different populations as well, because for example, I would definitely be in favor of more aggressive intervention when it comes to pediatric populations, children, like if your if your prefrontal cortex isn't developed until you're like 25 or something, then from my perspective, you're not able to make the most rational, high functioning um, decisions until you're around that age. So oh, you, you know, shouldn't be let vote is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's my first year of voting. <laughs> but but like when you're when you're a child, for example, like we we know that that marketing directly to to children from fast food companies and and other food companies that that impacts their behavior their desire for foods etc so like i would be more in favor of of like limiting and restricting marketing um to children and things like for example um specific school programs and things like the the regulation of menus in schools for example like i i remember in my in my secondary school, like some of the lads used to just get like lunch every day in school. And they used to have like, you know, these like potato balls and they used to have chicken nuggets and stuff. They eventually changed the menu, but initially it was like that. And like, it's just awful to have that stuff in schools because as soon as the menu changed, yeah, like guys bought different stuff. Um, but obviously you can just go to the shop as well and buy whatever, but these types of things do impact behavior. So definitely like in, in children in particular, I'm definitely more in favor of, of those types of interventions. I think most people would be like, I think it's fair enough to, to accept that we should look after those more vulnerable in society. I think where people have more challenge or more difficulty accepting, um, more aggressive interventions such as taxation or um, other disincentives um, to buy particular foods or incentives to buy other foods or you know restrictions on marketing etc is in adults because some of us like to think that oh you know we're all responsible for ourselves and if you can't make your own decisions that's your fault but um, again the, this the, the susceptibility to marketing the susceptibility to needing to save money on certain foods etc um, and the availability of foods whether it be a food desert or a food swamp which we've discussed earlier in the obesity series all these things go on to impact one's food choices and we've already seen like if you were looking at this in any other area of research you'd accept that okay like this experiment um, clearly demonstrates that this food environment environment results in increasing rates of obesity. We can't necessarily like it's unrealistic to expect that somehow all of the individuals who are, are going to change their behavior without there being a change in the causal factor that led to them adopting the behavior in the first place. So yeah, I think like right wing, left wing, up down doesn't matter. I think that you you can still have these these objective discussions and realize that there's there is a lot of challenge here and that i don't i don't think it's actually easy to come to these conclusions either because i i think that when it comes to the regulation of, of food and stuff and, and discussing obesity and obesity policy 
you don't actually tend to find like sometimes you do but i don't find that there's like a hard like left-wing versus right-wing stance as there is on other topics like i think a lot of people just kind of have these ideas that they've never really had to think about deeply and thinking about them for me and i'm sure for you is definitely caused me to question a lot of my own biases as well i don't have any biases gary (laughs) i'm a robot um but yeah look it's a fucking complex thing yep i'm just gonna fucking end it on basically leaving with a few questions right so like Obviously, like we've thought about this stuff and we're coming to the conclusion that we don't have a good conclusion. Um, but there are obviously smarter people out there and maybe one of you is actually listening to this. Um, so if you think you have a solution to this from a policy perspective, because obviously we have a solution from it from an individual perspective, right? And we'll talk about that in future episodes in terms of like what you should do if you want to, you know, fix your overweight or obesity, right? If you want to like, you know, become normative weight, right? Um, like we, we can talk about that for fucking days till the cows come home. There's so many interventions we could do on an individual level, right? Um, but if we're talking about a policy level, like a, a society-wide level, a government-wide level, like there's, it's not like, you have to even just focus on the culture, not necessarily just the policies that are affected, or affecting nutrition, the nutritional landscape, right? Like, again, like we were talking about, like, Japan and stuff, you know? Like, there's a lot of cultural stuff that goes on in the the background that allows certain interventions to be successful versus not be successful, you know? Um, So if you have a policy that you're thinking, oh, we should do this, like, just think about what would that actually look like in terms of for you as the individual, right? So you're an obese individual in a lower socioeconomic status, for example. What would these interventions look like? Okay, so we put a tax on certain foods. Does that mean that you have less access to foods? Is that actually making your life harder in the short term and that you're okay with that because it makes it better in the long term? You have to just think about that, you know, with the intervention you want to bring in, right? Like, are you ending up with less food in your belly as a result, right? So if you are a marginalized person in society is that necessarily a good thing right and if we have too heavy a hand do we effectively end the prosperity that we have been experiencing like we've basically eradicated starvation you know fucking around the world you know Um, and it is because of these neoliberal policies and this more globalized system that we have you know so again i always view it as an absolute win for capitalism or neoliberalism i'm like it's too effective right that's the way you should view it just be like i'm not going to say it's bad i'm just going to say that it's too effective for you know humanity at this time and again you just i view it like horse racing you know so this horse that is neoliberalism in the food environment needs to be handicapped right so in horses you just put more weight on them so you know they can't run as fast right and so here it's like okay we need to have some level of intervention so that the obesity epidemic epidemic isn't running as fast, right? So people can still have their choice. They can still have their freedom, but there's barriers to that, right? Um, So you have to think about that. Um, And again, like there are individual level policies that we can bring in that I think are effective, you know, like putting health labels, for example, on foods. And like, if you do care about your health or something, like you can look at it, like putting like nutrition data on your food, like they're great interventions to do. Now, is that going to solve the obesity epidemic overall? No, but it lets the individual make better choices themselves, right? Um, but again, I don't think that's the be all and end all, right? And then you can start thinking of like, oh, different incentives and different disincentives at different levels in the overall food environment. And like you can talk about like grants and taxation on the consumer and then at the corporate level, like 
how are we fixing this? Like, are we helping farmers to make cheaper food? You know, cause again, I would, I would advocate for that because I think it creates more jobs. Like, again, I think like I would also advocate, even though I'm definitely like, it's definitely a, an antagonistic belief to my overall beliefs. Like I would be very right leaning. I don't think that like nationalizing industries is a great idea for a lot of things, but I would also be like, why don't we just nationalize like a, a chemical industry in terms of like fertilizer, for example, like no Irish farmer, I can tell you right now, no Irish farmer likes being beholden to German fucking fertilizing companies and chemical companies, you know, whereas if we had an Irish one, like, I don't know, subsidiary of fucking board Bia or something. And, and they were able to get cheap fertilizer and as a result produce better crops and, you know, whatever, like basically in Ireland, we grow grass, but you know, they were able to do that at a much cheaper rate. Like they're able to make cheaper food and, and again, you could then regulate that overall. So it's like, okay, we're able to make cheaper food in certain ways that we want. Like maybe you give them a grant for you know, growing vegetables. Like we don't really, we basically don't grow vegetables in Ireland, you know? And like we get them from fucking yeah, the, the middle of Europe, right? Um, so again, like maybe you want to change that. Now Ireland doesn't have a great climate for that. So maybe not that, but I'm just saying like, these are kind of ideas that you need to be thinking through. Like how can you both create jobs and um, because you would create jobs with the, the chemical plant there. Um, and then you would also help these farmers who are already struggling and um, with cheaper fertilizer. And then we could make cheaper food. So even though we're going to heavily regulate, you know, whatever these uh, prepackaged foods, these fast foods, whatever, we're also making it cheaper to get healthier foods, right? So again, like you can think of stuff like that. And I'm just saying like, that's, that's me spitballing here. Like I haven't thought that out. Like there could be fucking huge gaps in that. Um, but you know what I mean? Like we could be thinking of these different things um, at different levels of the overall food system, right? Um, like again, like how do we incentivize like national produce or yeah, national produce, like foods that are made here versus like this multinational corporation you know um like i think a heavy tax on advertising of certain kinds it makes sense you know like i don't see why it wouldn't make sense i also don't see why like uh, i know we've had this whole thing about like essential workers and you know whatever in the last while like i don't know how anyone could make an argument that i know rte for example is an essential work like maybe the news but they should just be on a blank screen for the rest of the time you know if we're all not allowed work why, why should why should they be allowed work you know like again if they're essential workers or they're non-essential workers, like I was advertising essential work, you know? So again, I think there should definitely be a heavy tax on advertising, especially like you said, to the youth. You know, if you're advertising happy meals with, you know, toys in those happy meals to younger individuals, I'm like, that's like, that's, that's quite fucking like reckless in my mind. <laughs> um, and as I said, in the last podcast, I think I'm anyway, I've said it a few times, like I don't like, I'm very, uh, pessimistic with the overall approach i'm like i i'll help individuals on an individual level but i don't know how we fix it in a policy level um now i know how we could potentially fix it in the future by impacting change in the youth right now um but i don't know how we fix it right now like we i think some individuals are kind of too far gone on a society-wide scale like again they could be helped on an individual scale but that means they have to want to change which you know nobody wants to change like nobody wants to change their lives um so I don't know. I think intervening at the childhood stage is the way forward. And again, I think as a society, if we look after children and look after their nutrition, like we end up with a better society overall. And I think that's like fairly well, you know, backed up by the science in terms of we know developmental, excuse me, developmentally what that does in terms of having good nutrition, good access to, you know, a variety of quote unquote healthy food at a younger age. 
like it just makes smarter people. It makes healthier people overall. So that's only a benefit, a win from society, you know? And again, in doing that, you would create more jobs, which is what I care about the most because again, it gives meaning and purpose to people's lives. Like you literally have jobs in the food service industry. So maybe uh, you fucking get rid of these, I don't know, McDonald's workers, in their food service industry, but you then hire them in the national, the nationalized fucking food bank thing where you know we feed all the kids you know every school gets free lunch or whatever the fuck you know like there's different ways that you could go about it and still keep jobs and still keep a functioning society and then end up in 10 20 years with a better society you know but again like there's probably huge holes in my thinking like i'm not saying i have this whole thought true if i did like i wouldn't be talking on this i would have a document that i'd be submitting to the government um but yeah, and then like also we can do stuff like incentivizing building of local supermarkets and exercise facilities, especially in low income areas, but just across the board, you know, like I don't see why, and like maybe I'm biased because obviously this is the industry we're in. Like, why don't gyms get a fucking fat grant? You know, like every time time you want to build a gym, like why isn't there like, oh, here, like you don't pay tax for the next 10 years in terms of VAT, you know, like the lottery gives money to on our sports clubs, like they'll give money to the GAA, they'll give money to like boxing clubs and whatever else. Like, why isn't it given to gyms like that? Surely, if we're trying to incentivize people to exercise, you know, it, that makes sense. So like stuff like that, I'm like, I think it's an easy win that could be easily done. Right. Um, and then there is also like a concept called nudging, um, which we'll probably talk about in like future episodes. But uh, like there are different interventions that we can do that, are beneficial but again we just have to be aware that first of all we don't want to give government too much power because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely um but also like central planning has rarely worked out in the past in terms of like the an individual can't know all of the different unintended consequences of their actions you know like again like the the classic example i think it was mezzy dung that was like oh um all of those sparrows are eating the uh, grain when we throw it out to plant our crops. So let's kill all the sparrows. So they literally incentivize killing of all the sparrows, right? And you think, okay, cool. Now we have better grain crop because more of the grain then became, you know, crops or more of the seeds became crops. But all that happened then was because the sparrows were all killed, fucking locusts then descended and they had another famine, you know? So like there are, it's not just like, oh, there was this little small unintended consequence. Like it wasn't too bad. It's like, no, we could make a mistake with this stuff and end up with famine, you know? So we have to tread lightly, you know? It's not just like we can bring in this sweeping change. Like it has to be like gently, gently done, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like ultimately, I think that there are many different potential um, avenues for intervention. And to be honest, like, even small interventions are very difficult to enact. And that's why us sitting here, like going back and forth is just not that influential. Like hopefully it's influential insofar as you're a personal trainer or you're a trainee and you discuss these things with your, your family and your friends. And that, you know, if there's policy to vote on in the future, you, you know, you allow or you share your views with your vote. But in terms of like actually enacting these things, even as simple as, a sugar tax, which would seem like quite a small um, intervention. The goal being, obviously, um, that if it's more expensive, that like there's two elements to it. One, people uh, will buy less, but then the company ultimately reformulates their product with lower sugar. So that's one of the things that people often don't get about taxation. It's not just a case of trying to um, get people to not buy the product. It's also, you know, saying to the company here, if you want to reformulate your product and have it uh, cheaper, you need to follow these rules, essentially. Again, there's trade-offs there too. But 
even in trying to enact that, there you have lobbying from from companies at at government level to make it more challenging. And I was just this just came up recently with um one of the professors of public health in, in UCC who was lecturing us. And I was actually discussing um, this topic as it relates to like media framing and that sort of thing. Uh, because one thing that happened, for example, in, in 2013, when, when um, Mayor Bloomberg tried to introduce the, 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 the that was the limit on, on the, the max size of, of the soda, for example, soft drinks. Um, basically what happened was if you look at the media and you actually look at the studies examining media framing of the topic, like a lot of it, I think like 60 or 70% was um, negative framing in the media. It wasn't necessarily from public health professionals. It was people from companies who were, or, you know, Coca-Cola, et cetera, coming on to discuss it and talking about it from a negative perspective. And then the media perspective, although Paddy's decided RT are being shut down, so it doesn't matter here. But, uh, basically, like from the media perspective, that's then influencing the public conversation. And even if it doesn't influence them directly, it, it introduces the that that argument into the person's mind that they can then discuss with other people. So like this stuff does run deep. And you can imagine that if you're trying to introduce um, a sugar tax, and that's what that professor was saying. He was saying he brought up this topic of like how sugar taxation works, the UK example, et cetera, at a meeting um, with where these um, representatives from different companies were. And he had huge hush push back um they don't want it to go forward um pushing back against it etc and like that's just one of the difficult things is that ultimately when it comes to these complex decision making processes and government and designing a designing if you will a society um etc it's really difficult because there's different interests you know a, a company cares about their bottom line you know that's what that's what they care about and and ultimately different companies are working with different values in mind um, and and trying to satisfy everyone just just doesn't really work so i think that we have to you know be clear on our values as a society as well which is again not going to be achieved on this podcast yeah and just even with the like the sugar tax like you should broaden your horizon when you're thinking about this stuff because there are multiple ways you can achieve the same outcome and people get caught up in thinking of one way. For example, like if you are a business, like you were saying here, like they don't want to have to get a tax on their product, right? Because that means that they have to then reformulate, right? And they have to potentially get a reduction in their overall profit margin, but also just their sales in general, right? And um, But like you can actually incentivize a company to change. Like you could say to a company, I'm going to charge you, or in Ireland, in Ireland, we have 23% VAT on every product, right? So you could say to them like, oh, we're going to lower your VAT down to 10% if you achieve this, this, and this target in terms of like sugar in your beverage and whatever else, right? Like that fixes both the problem. The, and the company is then like, okay, cool. I can actually still make fucking money, right? Because everyone wants money. Um, and... I'm incentivized to change the formulation, which is ultimately what the, the government is trying to do with a sugar tax, right? So like there are other ways around it. Now, again, there's probably some key issues with that. Um, like again, like that means that the government has less tax overall and it's probably, you know, I don't know about the, the overall tax law in different countries and stuff, but like maybe they're not allowed to give specific tax incentives to different companies, um, you know, because that then causes one company to be, you know, better off than another company that doesn't get that tax break, you know? Um, so like there are ways to tackle something from different perspectives, but again, like we have to think of it in terms of incentives and disincentives. If we can incentivize these companies to do better, 
then that's a win for society, right? And how we actually achieve that, like it's less, less relevant, it's less, less important to me how we actually achieve that as long as we actually get the end goal that we're looking for, right? That, in my mind, I'm like, as long as we can keep jobs, as long as we can you know, get the end goal, like the end kind of justifies the means, like obviously within you know, uh, an ethical framework, I'm not gonna be saying like, oh, introduce slavery and stuff like because it you know, cheapens the fucking produce and stuff. Like obviously that's not beneficial, but you know what I'm saying in terms of like, there's multiple ways we can attack this singular outcome that we want to achieve that would benefit both parties in terms of like the consumer and the end or, or and the producer as well, right? So again, I don't have all the answers. I definitely do not have all the answers. However, someone listening to this might have all the answers and might be able to impact change at some level. And, you know, hopefully, like Gary said, like if you do eventually have a situation where you're able to impact on, you know, giving your vote, giving your opinion on something, like you would take a more nuanced perspective of this, which I've hopefully tried to do throughout this even though as i said from the last podcast and in this podcast like i'm obviously biased like i'm invested in these companies so like their bottom line like i'm i'm invested in them making more money and paying me a fat dividend and also growing their company you know like that's what i want right now again that's an ethical you know thing that i have to deal with because i also don't like what happens to society as a result you know and so it's it's a bigger bigger discussion than just like how do we uh, solve the obesity epidemic and why capitalism is to blame you know it's a, it's a far larger discussion and like again like we said earlier on it involves a lot of like introspection and actually uh looking at your own beliefs and seeing how accurate they are in terms of their effect on what you actually want to impact on and then also in terms of your biases and blind spots in different areas. Like, why do you believe something here, but then believe the exact opposite over here? And again, that's perfectly fine to do. You know, like you might think that that's actually not okay. Like you can't have conflicting beliefs, but you definitely can. You can be like, there's a nuance to this stuff, you know? Yeah, and I mean, like investments aside, like even thinking about an, like an individual level, like both you and I, like if we were on holidays or something, like, or even we were like going to get food in Dublin somewhere, like I want the best options possible. I want there to be 3000 calories pizza pizzas available to me, but I recognize that that's not necessarily what I want at a society wide level. Like last time me and you went to London, we got a pizza that was like, what was it? Three foot long or something like that. And you know, we had a lovely Ben and Jerry's after or haagen or whatever. Um, and I, I, I love, like, I absolutely appreciate capitalism to death for making those things available for me. It's fantastic because I'm able to, manage my health. I know how to back away from that. I know how to keep my health in order and everything. So I'm able to separate what I want for myself to be available um, and what I think might be the best for public health. And I think that, that that's probably one area where personal trainers and gym goers do struggle with this because you know that you can kind of handle the temptation because it's just fine. But on a public health level, it is a bit different. But anyway, if you do want to go and do some some reading on kind of some of the public health stuff. Like we talked about interventions, incentives, disincentives, et cetera. I would recommend checking out um, the Nuffield, the Nuffield report on bioethics, I think it's called. Um, but they are even just look up the Nuffield intervention ladder. Um, and it basically gives you a ladder of different levels of intervention from very low levels of intervention to very high levels of intervention. Very low level of inter- intervention would be, you know, um, Boris Johnson coming out and saying, 
eat healthier for Britain or, you know, something like that. Very high level of intervention would obviously be the example we gave with regards to Japan, like fining companies for hiring too many overweight people. Like that's clearly quite extreme on the other level of the intervention or the other area, the other side of the intervention. Yeah, whatever. Um, but yeah, check that out. Would recommend looking that up. There's a lot of good stuff in there in terms of integrating um, political philosophy into these types of discussions. You get an appreciation um, for like the philosophy of like John Milton, John Milton Keynes and, and, and how, all, how all these things integrate together from a philosophy, a politics and a public health uh, perspective. So get stuck in and, and yeah, without, without further ado, I guess we will uh, say goodbye. Um, where you can find us guys, as always, uh, if you're interested in the coaching process, you want to move away from all this public health junk and you just want to, you know, get on, on the path with your own individual goals, we do offer coaching. So if you'd like to work with us, um, you can drop us an email. You can check out the link below. You can DM us individually. We don't mind. Reach out. Let us know what your goals are. We'll see if you're a good fit, if we're a good fit for you, and then we can uh, book you on a call and hopefully give you some more information about the coaching process, okay? Um, other than that, we do obviously have our Coaches Corner as well. So if you are a coach, you're interested in upskilling, you're interested in uh, improving your your education, your understanding of anatomy and physiology and nutrition theory and case studies, etc. Get involved in the coach's corner. Would recommend. Uh, you can also subscribe to our triage method newsletter. Um, goes out every weekend, um, almost every weekend, and uh, it contains lots of valuable information. We got some great feedback on our newsletter this morning, which I was very happy with. So I would recommend uh, that you subscribe to that newsletter because again, there's unique content that doesn't go anywhere else. So I would recommend subscribing. Um, that also includes stuff that's not just from us. So we share recommendations from other resources, whether it be YouTube videos, research papers, books, podcasts, etc. So if you need more educational material, that's the place to go. Um, we do also have a Facebook group, the Triage Method Community. So if you want to pop in there, ask us questions. Um, if you're a personal trainer, you know, you're having a difficulty with a client or something, feel free to, to share um, what's going on and we can give you some advice as can the other trainers that are in that group. And other than that, we just recommend or following us on our social media platforms. So follow at triage method on Instagram, and you can also follow um, us individually on Instagram. So me at skinny guys, Patty at the real Patty Farrell, and then Brian, uh, our nutritionist at Brian O'Hangasa. Again, um, don't try and spell that. Just <laughs> look it up, <laughs> look up Brian OH and you'll find him on Instagram or you'll find Brian him on our page. USA. So probably come up there because his name does say USA. Yeah, USA. It ends in USA. USA. <laughs> so yeah, uh, follow the podcast guys uh, or subscribe to the podcast on the platform that you use. If you use a platform that offers you the opportunity to leave a review, then please do leave a review. Um, and other than that, that's everything that we have for this week. Yeah, I have nothing else to say. That was a very nice episode and I hope people enjoyed it. It's too easy. <laughs>